Hello, I'm David Kramer, the Executive Director of the Bush Institute, the results-oriented policy arm of the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Overheard at the Bush Center brings you the latest conversations about the world's most pressing challenges. Thanks for joining us as our experts talk to leading policymakers, business leaders, and people on the front lines of change about issues like immigration, economic opportunity, education, democracy, and the importance of free societies. Freedom is under attack worldwide as many countries contend with democratic backsliding and authoritarian regimes flex their muscles in and beyond their own borders. On November 16th, the Bush Institute, in partnership with Freedom House and the National Endowment for Democracy, hosted a conference on the struggle for freedom. The event gathered activists, experts, and leaders who assessed threats to freedom and offered recommendations for the cause of liberty. They also examined the global struggle for freedom, pushing back against the authoritarian threat and how the U.S. can help support democracy and human rights abroad. That's up next on Overheard at the Bush Center. Welcome our panelists and their moderator, the Deputy Director of Freedom and Democracy at the George W. Bush Institute, Chris Walsh. Good afternoon. It's been quite a day already, but it's, uh, it's an incredible thrill to be here with this all-star panel, but with all of you. You didn't have to come here, you didn't have to be here, but you took interest, you cared. So thank you from all of us at the Bush Institute for being dedicated to this incredible cause. As I said, we had a busy day today so far. We've talked about the global struggle for freedom, defining what it is. We've met some of the brave uh, people who are risking their own lives to secure freedom, to secure freedom for their families, their loved ones. And we've talked about the tools that are used, technology. But how do we support democracy? I'm glad you asked. That's why we have this distinguished and accomplished panel here today. Uh, it's a great honor to be here with, starting from my left, Alice Albright, who is the CEO of the Millennium Challenge Corporation. We have Stephen Began, who is the former United States Deputy Secretary of State. We have Goli Ameri, who is the co-founder and CEO of Start It Up, and a former U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Educational and Cultural Affairs, and Charles Davidson, our co-chair of the DC Forum and Global Financial Integrity. Thank you all for being here today. Now, an agency focused on reducing poverty through economic growth may not be the most obvious place for us to start a talk on international democracy support, but MCC is a unique thing. And we're fortunate to have Alice with us here today. And I wonder if you would talk a few minutes about how MCC is incentivizing democratic governance and what to expect from MCC as it approaches its 20th anniversary. Alice, please. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's just a great uh, honor to be here. And I have to say it's incredibly special to be here at the Bush Institute, where, of course, President Bush and his administration created MCC. So uh, what a very special moment. Um, so let me just uh, start by telling you a little bit about what MCC is and, and how it works. Uh, so the agency was started in 2004, uh, and since that time we've worked with uh, 49 countries, we've deployed $15 billion, and altogether we estimate that we've held about 215 million people. So a fairly significant uh, footprint. Uh, the president created the agency to really begin to align how we could pursue 
international development, but very much focused on working with countries who are themselves on a pathway to building a better future for their citizens. So that meant democratic governance, fighting corruption, investing in people, and managing their economies well. Uh, so it was very much about the idea of aligning, encouraging democracies, and in doing so, helping those countries progress on the pathway towards international development and poverty reduction. So it was a very distinctive model of international aid at the time. Uh, we work in a very distinctive way. So let me start out by the who we work with piece. Uh, and there are essentially two, um, two elements to this. First, we work with countries who are, uh, are low and lower middle income countries. And right now that includes about 81 countries. The very, very interesting part happens when we score every one of these countries on three different types of policy dimensions. And this is all on our internet site, so it's, it's actually very um, transparent. But we have what we call our scorecard. It's become one of our sort of signature uh, eligibility uh, mechanisms. And we rate countries on three different dimensions. One is, are they running their economy well? Another is, are they investing in people? And the third is, are they a democracy? And are they trying to, uh, to fight corruption? And in fact, one of the significant sources of data that we use for the democracy piece comes from Freedom House. So it was wonderful to see Michael here. Um, so we only work with those countries that are very, very focused on doing the right thing for their people and continuing to be democracies. Uh, and this has created a very interesting effect that we've observed, which is that countries uh, look at our scorecards and want very much to become eligible for MCC funding because it is significant grant funding. And in wanting to become eligible, they themselves make reform decisions to begin to align with what the scorecard calls for. So I'll give you a couple of examples about that. One, I'm sorry? Oh, I was just saying, please. please. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, so one is in uh, Cote d'Ivoire. And uh, when they started looking at the scorecard, they only passed five of the 20 indicators. And they decided that they wanted funding from MCC. And so over a then seven-year period, they made some very distinctive policy choices so that they then passed 14 of the indicators, and then, of course, they became eligible for significant grant funding. So there's a very distinctive effect that we can observe where countries decide to get on a reform path that is aligned with those policy measures that I mentioned. Uh, another example that really sticks with me is the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and many people who know that country know that it has a lot of challenges. They have set up a team inside of their, um, their executive that has specifically said that they want to adopt our scorecard as their roadmap for reform. They're on the phone with my team all the time, uh, and they are trying very hard to make significant changes that would align them with our scorecard. So there's a significant incentivizing effect by the notion of this scorecard. Um, now, the flip side of the coin, and this is where uh, there's some interesting conversations, is what happens when countries aren't eligible, or what happens when something changes? So. Uh, recently, Burkina Faso encountered a coup, had a coup in, um, uh, very early in the year, and we were in the process of deploying hundreds of millions of dollars of assistance to help them with various things. And we had to uh, look at the situation, and we decided we had a choice between could we suspend or did we terminate. And we made an initial decision to suspend with the hopes that they would um, uh, call for an election. They did not call for an election, so then we made a decision to terminate. So from time to time, we have to swallow hard and make difficult decisions. 
where we aren't able to work with countries because they have stepped backwards from a democratic pathway. So I had to write them a letter and say, I'm very sorry, we can't support you. Please put in place an election and we can talk again. Um, so it does, there are difficult moments associated with this, um, but I think uh, ultimately very valuable. Um, just a few points about how we work with countries. We, again, are very, um, very dedicated to putting countries in the driver's seat so that as they have chosen a pathway to be democratic, we help them be strong. So uh, we work very closely with countries around the priorities that they identify. If you look at the details of our operational model, we set up various entities so that it is really the countries that are doing the implementing work. And the idea being that the countries need to own the success here. And that is very much a part of, um, of thinking about how do we help them as fledgling democracies stay on that pathway. So it's very much about putting countries uh, in the driver's seat. Um, we've had some great successes over the first 18 years and uh, that we've been in business. And I've had the great uh, honor of traveling now to many country partners uh, since I started in, uh, in February, from Zambia to Lesotho to East Timor. Uh, to, um, to Kosovo, to uh, Mozambique, to Cabo Verde. I think I might be forgetting some. Um, but for all of those countries, we've had a meaningful impact in creating jobs, providing water, creating educational opportunities, improving health outcomes. And it's very, very clear that the, the agency has had a very strong impact over the first uh, 18 years of its life. As we look forward to our 20th birthday, uh, it is a very important moment for the agency. As I've often said, it's not just about a birthday cake, although there will be some cake. Um, we are uh, looking at what, does the, what is the role of the agency in the US government toolkit over the next 20 years. And of course, we find ourselves at a moment that is quite different from when the agency was created. Um, we all know that we're still living with a lot of the sort of tail end impacts of the pandemic. Uh, climate, climate change, resiliency to climate change is an existential issue facing many of the countries that we work in. Uh, access to energy and various questions around energy, energy transition is another existential question and has become in some ways more so uh, in the wake of the invasion of uh, Ukraine. So we find ourselves facing a very set of complex, interdependent, and different challenges than existed 18 years ago. So uh, we're asking ourselves, what do we do about that? And one of the things that we've measured is recently is where does poverty occur? And if you look at where countries are vulnerable to all of those things that I've mentioned, um, it is in a wider range of countries than we are currently eligible to work in. So we're thinking about whether or not there are certain adjustments to our, uh, our legislation that are necessary, given the nature of the challenges that we have ahead of us, but also where are they occurring. Uh, but there are many things about our work that will not change with 20 years. We will stay very devoted to wanting to help democracies deliver. Uh, we'll stay very devoted to working with countries and behind their priorities, and very much associated with wanting um, to be very selective and data-driven in our work. So it's a very important moment, and I hope that we can stay uh, in close touch with our friends at the Bush Institute as all of that important um, work unfolds because we have an awful lot of leaning in to do uh, over the next 20 years. But thanks again so much for inviting us to be here today. It's a great honor. Thank you, Alice, for that overview. We really appreciate it. Let me, let me turn to you, Stephen. You're a veteran of State Department leadership. You've worked on democracy issues and civil society. I think we're both alumni of IRI, actually. Mm -hmm. 
But let me ask you, besides MCC, how else is the United States supporting democracy? What, what tools should it be developing and refining? And I ask this particularly in the, in the face of rising authoritarianism that we're seeing right now in Ukraine and Taiwan. So let me, uh, let me quickly start by uh, saying what a privilege it is to be here at the George W. Bush uh, Institute as a uh, former White House staffer for President Bush. Uh, it's great to be here, and Dave, thank you for the invitation. Uh, also with Freedom House and with National Endowment for Democracy, uh, as a former board member for Freedom House and a current board member for NED, uh, Mike and Damon, thank you for uh, those opportunities. Um, this cause is one that's very dear to me, Chris. It's one that, to which I've uh, devoted a significant part of my life and my career. And when, in, in thinking about this, uh, I recalled a speech that President Bush gave in 2002. He delivered the commencement address at West Point in June of that year. Uh, and he, he laid out a framework for how the administration's policy, foreign policies were going to be advanced uh, during his presidency. And, and the framework was this, that we were going to defend the peace, we were going to preserve the peace, and we were going to extend the peace. And democracy was woven into each of, of those principles and later formed the, uh, the construct for the national security strategy that President Bush released in 2002. And, and as I think about those, I, I, each applies to the, to, the, uh, to the question that you asked. We have to defend democracy first, just as we have to defend the peace. We defend democracy with a strong United States military. We defend it with a strong defense industry. We all know what HIMARS are. We all know what, what javelins are. We all know what stingers are. We all are learning what NASAMs are with a 100% shoot-down rate of Iranian drones and, and Russian missiles in Iran as of today. Um, we need a strong defense to defend democracy. Democracy has to be defended, and that is the birthright and responsibility of us, the United States of America. Of course, we do it with partners and allies. We do it with our alliances like NATO, our alliances with our Asian partners and Pacific partners like Japan, South Korea, and Australia. But democracy must be defended. We also defend it by defending uh, our information systems and our electoral processes against uh, malign influences that are seeking to erode democracy from within. And we, use, we, we defend it by enforcing our laws against those who would violate our laws and undermine our own democracy. We also uh, want to preserve democracy. How do we preserve democracy? The best democracy-building policy the United States could have is be a good democracy, bar none. How do we do that? Democratic culture, democratic civility, respect for democratic traditions, active participation in our democracy. We have to be invested in our democracy, not just participants or observers of our democracy. We had a very important election just two days ago, 49% turnout in the United States of America. We have got to be a good democracy if we want to see democracy advanced around the world. And the last is extending democracy, and, and that's a particular pursuit of many of you in this room and how to extend democracy and those democratic opportunities to other people around the world. Um, at the sake of being simplistic, let me start with what democracy is not. Democracy is not regime change. It can create an opportunity for freedom, but democracy is not a guarantee after regime change. Democracy is not elections. Elections are being mimicked by authoritarians around the world in, in electoral environments that are far from democratic. 
And, and building democracy is not missionary work. It, we're not going to convince or persuade people to be Democrats. We extend democracy first by partnering with the other countries that, uh, that hold dear the same democratic principles we do. We also do it by partnering, not, not recruiting, not proselytizing, but partnering with many people, including those we heard from earlier today in that incredibly impressive panel who are fighting for their own democratic rights. Um, I, was, uh, I, was, uh, I lived in Russia uh, in the uh, early 1990s, the first three years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. My wife and I moved there, and I opened the program for the International Republican Institute, one of the first democracy-building uh, uh, efforts that uh, went into Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. I was spread so thin, stretched so far by the enormous demand of the Russian people to understand and to learn the techniques and the, tech, and, and the technologies of democracy, to interact and to connect with people from other countries who had gone through the democratic experience, to listen to the leaders of Russia today the, and the aspersions they cast on that period. The United States of America was not trying to change Russia. Russians were trying to change Russia. And we were walking down that road together with them as partners. But the authoritarians know that, and they know that today. Civil society is, under, is the first line of attack by these authoritarians. And that's what great organizations like Freedom House, like NED and others do, is they work with civil society, building that foundation for freedom that ultimately is, is the foundation upon which a democracy can build. And so you know, that's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. Thank you, Stephen. I appreciate that. Goalie, let me turn to you. Not to go to a grim place, but Freedom House, as we've talked about earlier today, has been recording, I think, it's 16 consecutive years of a decline in freedom around the world. And I think many of us in this room and who are in these issues every day are wondering, how can American leadership and its allies be leveraged to reverse this trend? And I, I want to look at a specific example, and it's been raised today before, is Iran. It's very timely, and I know it's a place that you have focused on specifically. And I'm curious, what, what can the United States, especially in the face of ongoing protests that seem to be sustained, how can they support that movement there in the United States? How can the United States and its allies support those protesters there? Thank you very much, Chris. <clears throat> um, I also want to take this opportunity to thank the Bush Institute, David Kramer, Freedom House, and Ned for having us all here today. Really appreciate that opportunity. I also want to extend a special thank you to Mrs. Bush for her support of the movement in Iran, and along with a number of other female global leaders demanding that the United Nations remove Iran from the UN Commission on the Status of Women. And talking about Iranian women, let me just start with a couple of words on that. Um, to add to the very articulate video that you just saw from uh, Laudan Burumand, um, the Iranian women um, literally have been tirelessly um, a thorn in the side of the, of the Iranian regime for decades now. You're talking about 16 years. Democracy has gone down in Iran for over 42 years now. Um, and despite all the obstacles that this regime has thrown in their way, um, Iranian women have a 96% literacy rate, and there are more university graduates in Iran than there are men. And you know, Iranian women are fighters, not just because they had to be, but because they expect the best of themselves. 
and they want to have the right and the independence to make their own choices and their own decisions. And removing the hijab is just a physical manifestation of all the other rights and freedoms that they're missing in, in their lives. I think a, a good way to think about it is to think, if I had not had the opportunity and this treasure of being able to immigrate to the United States, I would have been exactly in that same situation in Iran right now. And the women in Iran are no less, if not they're by far more, by far smarter, by far more active um, than people like us in the diaspora sitting here. So it's really important to, to know that. Um, now going back to your very good questions, I think what I'd like to start out with is actually what we shouldn't do, which is do no harm to the outcome of this movement and equally as importantly to US global standing. And these are the reasons why I'm saying that. U.S.-Iran policy for quite some time has been very partisan and ideological. Um, and I think it's about time for us to put the partisanship aside and speak with a strong American voice. Um, because despite our recent challenges with democracy, it is still a voice that is quite weighty all over the world. It carries a lot of heft. And I think what sometimes people may not have understood is that the more divided we are, the more the mullahs take advantage. Um, and you know, they, they get more and more entrenched in, in that system. So let me give you some examples, other examples, um, other than our partisanship. We should not by any means throw our support behind so-called opposition movements like the Mujahideen, also known as the MEK, also known as the National Council of Resistance, who are despised in Iran, yet they have very effectively found their uh, way around the halls of Congress. I was really delighted to see a statement from the State Department yesterday completely disassociating um, the US government for any support for, for the MEK. Um, the third thing is we should not by any means fan um, any kind of ethnic separatist movement in Iran. And the reason why I'm saying that is because Iranians are actually very concerned about Iran's disintegration. And this is something that has been abused by the regime as an excuse for their iron fist domestically. And in fact, there have been, it's been said that in the 2009 uprising in Iran, one of the reasons why people were asking for reforms rather than an outright revolution was because they were worried about that after some of the events that had happened post the Iraq um, invasion. And then lastly, Iranians are not looking for kinetic action in Iran. What they are looking for is solidarity. And what that means is they want to know that democratic nations have their back and they can feel safe and that these nations will hold the Iranian regime accountable. So let's talk about some of the things that we can do. Um, I think one of the most um, important things is for us to be proactive rather than reactive and for all democratic countries to speak with one voice. And I think one of the best ways of doing that is convening a global conference specifically focused on responding to the Iranian people that is attended and organized by democratic and regional partners. And there's multiple concrete outcomes that can come out of a conference like this. So first and foremost is how to axe 
the economic power of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. We have to remember that the IRGC was set up exactly for a day like this. And they literally, it is said, they own up to 80% of the Iranian economy, industry, and trade. Um, so we have to look for ways to, to cut that economic power. So here are some ideas about how we can do that. Um, I understand that, um, first and foremost, actually, at the EU, there are nine European countries that are part of this bartering mechanism they set up with Iran called INSTEX. They need to step out of that because trading with Iranian quote-unquote companies is trading with the IRGC, and it's putting money in their pocket. And, you know, we've heard time and time again today a lot of people talking about how it's time for Europeans to actually step up. Um, secondly, the International Monetary Fund says that Iran has $31 billion in foreign assets. We need to find those assets and we need to freeze them until a democratic power comes to, comes to power in Iran. My understanding is that um, the Iranian leadership and their progeny have substantial assets in the United States and in Europe. Those assets need to be frozen as well. We have to find every possible measure to halt, halt the oil smuggling that's happening out of Iran, which is bought mainly by China. And if at all possible, um, you know, with allies going back to the UN and reinstating some of the UN sanctions on Iran, especially right now for violating um, some of the resolutions on not arming uh, Russia. So in addition to economic sanctions that could come out of a conference like this, um, there should be a joint statement by all democratic powers in support of a free and democratic Iran. We need to say that loud and clear. And putting all negotiations on JCPOA on hold until the day where such a regime comes to, such a government comes to um, power. And then lastly, um, on the sidelines of a conference like this, it would be really important to invite reputable opposition figures and influential people in the Iranian diaspora that can come together and meet and discuss the format of a future of Iran, future of a democratic Iran outline that they can talk about, they can discuss, they can put together, and eventually it could be reviewed by the Iranian people and voted on. So this kind of a gathering, I think, would really have some serious impact for what's happening in Iran right now. Thank you, Gali. I appreciate those remarks. And thinking about your points on the Revolutionary Guard and the assets controlled by the regime is a perfect segue to Charles. It's almost as if we planned it. We didn't, but it just worked out that way. Charles, I know you do a lot of work with kleptocracy and corruption, and I know that Damon touched on this in the earlier panel as well, but let me, let me ask you this. I, I have two parents who I love very much, hardworking, savvy, but... How would I explain to them, and I'm going to cheat here, I'm going to cram three questions into one. What is kleptocracy? Uh, how does it affect us here in the United States? And what does the United States do about it? Well, that's a lot for me to remember. I know, I'm sorry. Right. I can that's remind tough. But, but thank you, uh, Goli, for, for setting me up. And I'd just like to add one thing first to the, uh, Steve's uh, extraordinary remarks, which is, we also have financial HIMARS, we have financial javelins, and we have uh, financial, uh, what was the other one? Stingers. 
Uh, and we have a lot of financial power uh, in this uh, defense of democracy too. And actually, I think the financial power we can use offensively a lot more than obviously the military power because that uh, uh, tends to be a little more dangerous. Uh, and trigger, trigger different responses. So uh, the, the freezing half of the Russian sovereign wealth uh, is a nice demonstration of our uh, financial power, certainly. Uh, now, we here, if we're going into kleptocracy, and I'll eventually uh, uh, answer Chris so he can relay to his parents, uh, but we're on kleptocracy-friendly ground here because Damon set it up a little bit this morning. Now, NED has a whole program in kleptocracy now. The George W. Bush Institute under David Kramer's leadership now has um, a kleptocracy thing going. And then Mike Abramowitz, president of Freedom House, who is here, very much understands these issues and has started to seed them into Freedom House's work. So friendly terrain. But first, thank you, President Bush. Thank you, Ken Hirsch. Thank you, David Kramer. And thank you, uh, staff of the Bush Institute and the Bush Center for hosting this and for such an extraordinarily logistically well-executed event, among other things. So, uh, well, how do we explain kleptocracy to Chris's parents? Now, I know nothing of their background or level of education or anything, so this is a little bit of a shot in the dark. Uh, but we all know kleptocracy, if we open the dictionary, it's rule by thieves. Okay, now that sounds kind of like Putin, and obviously we'll focus just on, on Russia and Ukraine because it just makes things simpler, and all the other kleptocracies are exactly the same for the most part, so we'll use them as our, our case studies. So rule by thieves, Putin is uh, uh, apparently a thief to the extent that usually heads of state don't accumulate this uh, stable of yachts and palaces and things like this. It isn't part of his salary, obviously. So something's going on there, and uh, it's been characterized as being a mafia state. Probably the best thing, if you're going to read one book, is Putin's Kleptocracy by the late Karen Duisha, whom I had the privilege of working with closely. Uh, so, uh, uh, and I, at this point, everybody kind of knows what a, what a kleptocracy is because of the uh, invasion of Ukraine and uh, all the news. Ukraine itself was very much a kleptocracy, and I hope we can get into that a, a little bit later, is no longer, and I think it would be very good if it did not return to being a kleptocracy going forward. Uh, but um, to, to explain how modern-day kleptocracy functions is actually pretty simple. So we get the idea that the, 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 the thieves in power, the kleptocrats, steal from their home country. Okay, now where does the money go? Does it stay in Russia or in Ukraine? No, it comes here. And Lursen Lot Yard in Hamburg uh, does a lot of business. Uh, Antibes sells a lot of real estate and the the yachts built by Lurson end up dominating the harbor there, et cetera, et cetera. So the money's all coming into the West, and therefore one might think we have a little bit of leverage on these people. But 2014, in January, Putin sent his little green men into Crimea, and I thought, my gosh, this is nuts. We're letting him do this when we have Putin and all of his oligarchs and henchmen by the you-know-whats because all their money is with us? 
What's going on here? And the Washington policy community did not seem to be aware of this. There were people in the Department of Justice, which already had an asset recovery initiative. There were people, we already had OFAC, a lot of people in the Treasury. But the policymaking community at large did not grasp the incredible leverage we had. Had. And Obama put in a few sanctions. Actually, it was interesting because Putin recoiled for a few days, and then he went back to, to being more aggressive. Uh, but we had all this power. So this needed to be brought to the fore. And my wife and I, my wife Julie and I, in reaction to the little green men, started the kleptocracy initiative at Hudson Institute to try to bring this notion or help bring this notion of our power, financial power in this situation to light and that this be uh, better understood. Uh, so uh, that, I don't know if that you know, helps at all in, in explaining this to your parents. The key thing to understand about modern kleptocracy is the looting, bringing, bringing it in outside of your country into the West. Now this is true of all the kleptocracies out there, all authoritarian regimes, and we're not gonna, we don't have time to go into this, but if you look at authoritarianism and the conflict between authoritarianism and democracy, every single authoritarian regime out there is a kleptocracy and fits this model where the kleptocrats loot their country, the money comes to us in the West where we protect it for them, then they, they pay Manafort, and various other people to launder their reputations here. I won't mention names because that David will probably get upset with me, but there's a whole reputation laundering industry so that once these people are in our midst, they can give money to Harvard and the Council on Foreign Relations and become businessmen as opposed to kleptocrats and people who a lot of them have murder in their past. But we've welcomed them into our midst and they are respectable citizens now thanks to the efforts of our PR folks. Uh, that's the model we have right now. That's, that's modern day kleptocracy. And, uh, what, uh, so, and, and how it affects us. Now, this, this has very pernicious effects on the uh, uh, economic freedom and on a healthily functioning capitalism because when you invite all of these people into our midst, do they become like us? No, we become like them. We thought if we opened up to China and all these Chinese students came here, they'd become Democrats and bring democracy to China. The opposite happened, and the same thing has happened to our, our business and financial community, which has moved more towards kleptocratic integrated behaviors. I mean, they're all, we're all working with these guys, uh, and, uh, and this is nuts. Uh, one story you could tell your parents is what, what is life like, okay? What is it like when you have a top-down kleptocracy, all right, where everything is essentially can be owned by, in the case of, of Russia, the Putin power vertical, or in the case of Ukraine, and I'll, I'll, I have an example from Ukraine, but we don't have time for it. You're going to want to shut me up. But one little story. If you're and this actually, I'll tell one story. It's a Ukraine story. We'll just sort of disguise it. If you're in a, a kleptocracy, and in Ukraine the kleptocracy was diffuse, but it was so enmeshed with Russia before that uh, it's almost, almost the same business environment. You started the business. You're in favor of free enterprise, and you've heard all about how democracy and capitalism is such a wonderful thing. You've read Adam Smith, maybe uh, Max Weber, uh, and you've maybe stayed away from some more recent notions that are a little more problematic. 
And so you, you, your business, you have a few employees, you maybe get to seven, eight employees. You start to create, you have a little bit more than a subsistence level of profit, okay? And then three guys, burly guys show up, you know, with bulges in their pockets in the right places and explain to you that they're your business partners now. That's what economic freedom is like in kleptocracy, and that's why it's a bad thing and why we better watch out here before burly guys start showing up on our doorsteps. I asked for it, and you delivered. My parents are getting <laughs> a lot smarter on kleptocracy, and I am too. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, in the time we have left, a few more questions, but Alice, I want to turn back to you for a moment. I'm curious, there's, there's one actor here I don't think we've mentioned by name, and that's Beijing. And I'm wondering how, how does MCC's work in other US democracy support, how does it compete against Beijing that is offering a model for development assistance that seems to have no other strings attached? There's nothing on uh, governance or transparency uh, or humanitarian, uh, uh, humanitarian uh, attachments to the funding they receive. How does our US democracy support compete with that? Well, it's a great question, and it's a very timely question. And let me, let me start by um, talking about the financial condition that exists in many of the partner countries that MCC has. So many countries now, uh, due to either sort of the economic um, um, following of the pandemic uh, and other factors, interest rates, inflation, are in very, very weak financial condition right now. And so they, many of them are on what I call a financial knife edge, where they have to finance you know, the activities of their country, and they can go this way and get into financial arrangements with China, or they can go this way and get into financial arrangements with the West. And that is a very real choice, and we hear about that all the time. The way that I like to think about it is that uh, our agency has a very clear value proposition that we offer to countries. Uh, and they can consider what choices they make. Um, so the first one is a clear pathway in working with the United States to try to continue to become a democracy. And I've laid out in terms of our, how we work with countries and the policy choices that that involves. It's a very clear pathway to enable countries to do the right thing for their citizens and continue to become uh, democracies. The second um, very clear value proposition is that we are grant financing. And when, we, uh, when a country ultimately does qualify for working with MCC, we're in a position to offer countries, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars of grant financing. And against a landscape in the development finance world that is often loans, grant financing, which doesn't have to be repaid, is incredibly valuable, uh, particularly when the way that we deploy it is very much behind the priorities uh, that the countries want. I think that thinking, you mentioned the strings attached, um, and I'll make some generalizations. Certainly working with MCC has policy and other types of requirements, but when we offer grant financing, we are not structuring in a way that if it's not repaid, we're going to take back the assets that are financed. And that is often the case when, uh, when countries get involved in uh, securing loans from China. So we offer a very, very um, clear pathway that is not only um, hopefully going to encourage countries to get on the right pathway from a democracy perspective, which, by the way, is good for international development, but it is also far more sound from a financial perspective. So it's a very, very distinct approach that is quite distinct from what China is doing. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is a question for all of you, but, but Stephen, I'll start with you because 
You mentioned democracy in action here in the United States, or perhaps the lack thereof, last week. We're about to seat a new Congress. How are they going to work together with this uh, administration, do you think? And what would you recommend that they focus on? What should they prioritize of their policy in terms of U.S. democracy support if you had a magic wand or got your wish granted? What would it be? Yeah, so I, I will tell you what I think is going to happen, then I'll tell you what I wish is going to happen. Uh, what I think is going to happen is uh, uh, two years of contentious political infighting uh, in a divided Congress, and, and, uh, and I think that... Um, it's going to require all of us to think long and hard as we go into the next election cycle how we're going to resolve this issue. Some of it is is due to some of the deterioration of dimensions of our democracy. Some of it is just uh, uh, fundamentally because we're a 50-50 nation uh, in, in so many things. Uh, I have to say I was quite reassured by the polling data that we saw earlier this morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a high level, it was it, it, uh, it, it, plenty of fodder for optimism. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, what we, what we can hope for, what I wish for, uh, is uh, an ability of our leaders to disagree agreeably, uh, to, to fight uh, their battles uh, and accept uh, both uh, winning graciously and, and losing uh, with, um, with uh, dignity. Uh, that, that's legislative battles. That's electoral battles. Um, that's democratic culture. And I think... I think what the American people are telling us, and this is the message I would glean from the election we had two days ago, is that's what they want. Um, that they want, uh, that, they, that what they rewarded was uh, a, a democratic civility in this election. And I think that's, a, that's a, maybe a reason to, uh, to uh, end this with a, a, on an optimistic note. Thank you. Goli, I'd ask you the same question. You know, Chris, honestly, I don't think I can say it any better than what Steve said just now. I think if if we're just going to repeat what I said before, as it pertains to Iran, because I think Steve said everything else that I don't really need to repeat, but I do need to repeat what I just said about the Iran situation. Um, And as Steve once again said, they have to agree, disagree agreeably. So when it comes to U.S.-Iran policy, this is not a football that they keep throwing back and forth at each other. You know, it's really important for both sides of the party to come together and to think thoughtfully about what to do about Iran. Because I think one of the things that we have to really think about Iran is that what the Iran protests are really a gift to the Western world. They're really a gift to the democratic world. Because with Russia being weakened right now by its bungling in the Ukraine, in the high stakes world of politics, this is the time where there's the least amount of risk in confronting Iran. And we can only do that in a thoughtful, bipartisan way where people are not pointing fingers at each other all the time. Where the way to the right talks about, used to talk about forced regime change, and the way to the left talk, talked about making friends with, the, with a country whose number one tenet is anti-Americanism. Mm. So there's a happy medium in there somewhere that both parties, unfortunately, have missed for decades. Thank you. Charles, I'll turn to you with the same question. Well, may, may I just comment on, on what was said? What was the question again, just so I have it precise? Having, having seated a new Congress, yeah. what would you like to see their, working, working in tandem with the administration, what would you like to see their priority policies, be, uh, their 
How would, they, how would you like to see them prioritize their policies toward international democracy support? Towards, yeah. Well, I think one thing, I, I also am a former member of the board of trustees of Freedom House and first met Steve there and Goli is still a, a board member there. And um, uh, in responding also to this Iran situation, I think it's, it's very important on this subject that we not back uh, uh, failure. Because if we, if we get all excited, for instance, situation uh, in Iran about backing the protesters and all that happens to them uh, with us in the process of backing them is that they lose and they get killed, imprisoned, and tortured and all of that. I'm not sure that's a, a success for democracy promotion or for American foreign policy. So I think we need to think much more about winning. I don't think it's constructive when we subsidize people to throw themselves on the barricades or something terrible happens to them and then we can't do anything for them. Uh, that gives the message to, uh, to other people that, in fact, uh, it's a very bad idea to be in, in for uh, democracy and freedom because you just get killed or tortured or something. So we have to focus on success. Uh, and we have to also, I think, be much more modest and careful about this because if we think of the experience after World War II of how we democratized certain countries, uh, it was not with a bunch of activists uh, and, and with some NGOs and stuff. It was at the point of a bayonet. I mentioned this in a Freedom House board meeting once and everybody looked at me like I was ill or something. How could you say such a thing? Uh, so I think we need to be, uh, I need to be sure that we have a winning strategy when we go in and back uh, a situation, for instance, like Iran now, all right? So it's great. Ah, wonderful. What's, how can these people win? And if we're going to back them, we better have a winning strategy and not just good intentions and virtue signaling. And Alice, I'll give you the final word on the question. About Congress. About what, what policy priorities would you well, like to see? Well, we're, I've been on the job since February, and I've been very struck by uh, the strength of the bipartisan support for my agency. Um, and we're exceptionally lucky, uh, and we, we sort of cherishly guard it. And um, in my conversations with members of Congress thus far, um, there's been uh, agreement about the importance of having a strong, it's small, and people understand why it's small, but um, from a budgetary perspective, but strong and meaningful engagement with, our, with uh, countries abroad that are, in, that are developing countries. And so I'm hopeful that um, that general policy direction will uh, continue. We continue to meet with uh, members of Congress and we'll hopefully meet with incoming members. Um, but it's important for the U.S. to project strength in working with, in, with uh, developing countries uh, because many of the problems that we've encountered, um, not just over the last few years, but we're seeing is that the challenges cross borders. And uh, we've seen it with the pandemic. We see it with different forms of um, vulnerability to climate. Uh, we've seen it with lack of opportunity in many, many countries. And so I'm hopeful that we can continue that very constructive dialogue with uh, people across the political spectrum on the Hill and maintain the very strong support that we have for our agency. Thank you. There's good work being done and still work to do, but I hope you'll join me in thanking our panelists. To watch or hear more conversations from the Struggle for Freedom Conference, visit bushcenter.org slash struggleforfreedom. To learn more about the Bush Institute's freedom and democracy policy work, visit bushcenter.org slash freedomanddemocracy.